0: Hello and welcome to My Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins and thank you for your company. A very special presentation this week. I have two guests with me, Ailsa Piper and Tony Doherty. they pilgrims who were brought together by a shared interest in the Camino de Santiago. Ailsa is an Australian actor, blogger and author of the book Sinning Across Spain, an account of walking the Camino carrying the sins of others. Monsignor Tony Doherty was a suburban parish priest in Sydney for more than 50 years. Throughout his career, he wrote and published widely in a quest, I'm told, to demystify religious language. We'll talk about that through the course of the podcast. While the Camino brought them together, their correspondence back and forth has now become a new book, The Attachment. We're going to talk later about the book, and it's outstanding, by the way. But first, let's talk all things Camino. We're here overlooking the magnificent Sydney Harbour on a very quiet and relaxed Friday afternoon. I'm delighted to say Alsa and Tony are with me. Welcome to you both.
1: Thank Hello you.
0: Hello, Dan. Alsa, <laughs> let's start with you. When did you walk your first Camino?
1: I walked the Frances from Saint-Jean to uh, Santiago in 2009, September, and later found out that Tony had walked it just before me. But I didn't know that at the time, of course. (laughs) So September
0: 2009. But that wasn't Sinning Across Spain, was it? Tell us about Sinning Across Spain, that Camino.
1: Well, that was strange. So I walked the Francaise and came back and thought, that's me done with Camino. Then I was researching for an adaptation of a play called The Duchess of Malfi, and I was deciding what would go in it and what wouldn't. And there were pilgrims in the original. So I was sniffing around about pilgrim stories, and I found this weird little thing that said... In medieval times, you could be paid to carry the sins of others. I have no idea why that seemed to me like the most thrilling thing I'd ever heard. But there was something about the idea of taking on other people's transgressions and walking in their footsteps. So very quickly, I put out a letter saying, basically, tell me your sins. People did. And so six months later, I found myself starting from Granada. And I did what's called the Mossarabe, which is from Granada, through Cordoba, and it joins the Via de la Plata at uh, Merida, and then you go up on the Via de la Plata, and then I went out to uh, Finisterre, and that was 2010, so it was six months apart. I walked a lot of miles in that six months.
0: So, while you're walking, were you mindful always of your mission as such, or, and can I ask, did it cast an almost a shadow over your pilgrimage?
1: I'm an extremely responsible person. I was head girl. I'm really a pain in the bum um, in terms of that. But, yeah, I was very responsible about it. I would start each day by reading the list of sins that had been given to me. And then as I walked, I would try to meditate on them. But, of course, life being life, it threw me both good times and bads. But, but many of them were sin-related. You know, I mean, I had lust and greed and pride and all of those things every single day. Um, And so I didn't really need to work to be mindful about them. They just, they actually kind of took over. And yes, there were days when, um, I think everyone has days on the pilgrimage where they feel terrible, but it was particularly terrible, I suppose, to compare the two. The second one was particularly hard. It was a lot longer. It was 1,300 kilometres. So by about the five-week point of walking, Thinking every day about a person who hadn't intervened in someone's suicide, or thinking every day about someone who'd had an affair and lost, you know, with their best friend's husband and lost the friendship as a result. Mm-hmm. Thinking what those things meant and trying to put myself into their shoes—it was a kind of sickness. I mean, it was a kind of a silly thing to do. So there were days when it got to me, but they were probably days when you know the weather would have got to me anyway. You know, I mean, I, I think they just that exacerbated or heightened a lot of the other
0: things. Are you a religious person or were you a religious person?
1: I was raised a Catholic, but I had a mother who was divorced very early, in the 60s very early, so the Catholicism was thrown into a particular light for me because she at that time, you know, that was kind of Mm. a terrible thing and she was Mm. not really able to be part of the church. So I was a Catholic who questioned it, but I had great nuns who basically said, you can do anything, Um, and they were doing anything. They were running a big business called a school, you know, So I think I had a very, uh, I had a good brand of Catholicism because it was a questioning one. I wasn't ever, because of my mother, I suppose, and also because of those women, I don't think I was someone who grew up thinking anybody had the answers. Um, But it taught me a lot of good things, and there were a lot of things about it I rejected. So I suppose I wasn't afraid of the idea of walking on ground that had been... You know, a track that had been yeah, made out yeah, of that yeah. kind of questioning. Mm.
0: So can I ask you then, as a result of sinning across Spain, not the book but the journey, <laughs> did you develop a deeper understanding of sinning and indeed a d- deeper sense of the weight of sin?
1: Yeah, I. I, it's, I mean, it's so particular for every one of the people I walked for and then for me separately, but I think the thing... I suppose I understood more about maybe was about compassion and forgiveness, that, you know, you can categorise I mean, mm-hmm. what Some of my sinners gave me things that they called sins, which I would just think were what it was to be human. Yeah. So, you know, it's about, I mean, I'm quite, I can be a bit punishing of myself, um, and I watched how other people punish themselves. And I, I think the thing I learned, I still don't think I'm particularly good at it, but I think for all of us is the point at which you can say, I can forgive that in that person, or, or particularly I can forgive it in myself. I, I learned more about that than probably about sin per se, but I did learn, and I do think this is important, that there's something profoundly beautiful and changing about just owning up to the bits that are the mucky bits, not doing the Facebook impression, which is this is me looking all beautiful yeah. and you know perfect, but actually yeah. saying... I did this terrible thing, mm. and I feel like it's shaped me, and it's awful, and I hate it. And that's the moment at which you go, oh, well, I sort of know what that's like, too. You know. So confession, I think, is what I learned about, and it's a good thing. You know?
0: And that's the theme of the book, isn't it? It's like life. We have good days, we have bad days, days we're angry with ourselves, days we're happy with what we're achieving and what we, we know we have in front of us, and, and that no matter how long your pilgrimage is or wherever you are it's very much like life isn't it and that's what your book is all about.
1: Mm. Yeah absolutely I think the my favorite thing that I ever heard you know there's so many things people say about the Camino and the Camino stories but I love that thing that they say that you don't walk the Camino that the Camino walks you and you know I felt like I got thoroughly trampled by it a few times but I also felt like um, it expanded me and I've done four now I've did those two and then I did the Portuguese and then last year as a kind of question for myself about was I still whole after the death of my husband I went and walked only about 300 k's along the roads the very south of the road from Puy across the Pyrenees to Pamplona and there was a great relief for me in finding out that the part of me that I call the walker is still alive and she's still got legs and she still can kind of go into the world and Mm. that it was a big test, you know, to walk a bit of a camino and think, yeah, no, there's some part of me that isn't I don't know if it isn't changed, but it's not broken by this. And so, you know, the it can I had known people before who'd done it as a kind of a grief reason, but I'd had no need to and I didn't go immediately to grieve, but I went to find out something. You know, we always go for some, yeah, yeah, a quest. I mean, you know? That's right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It is a quest. That's right. And I know that by writing Sinning Across Spain, in a sense, and you can read a, a very much a theme through it, that there is an unburdening on the page. I know you've you know, you've been asked to revisit the book recently. Has it been a chance to unburden again some, some years after?
1: Well, it was actually the first time I'd read it since I wrote it I mean I'd read snippets at writers festivals but I'd not read the book so I was quite it was the weird thing was revisiting that person from you know five years ago well actually from seven years ago because I did it in 2010 the book came out in 2012 and what they'd asked was an update chapter you know bring us up to date on what's happened well of course the largest thing that had happened was the sudden and unexpected death of my husband and so Um, But also the result of the book. You know, there were two things, actually, which was the continuation of the Camino, because I had talked Camino and been in the Camino world because of having written a book. So that was quite interesting to see how I'd walked this road, then I'd written a book about it, and then the book took me on a Camino that was a whole other Camino of its own, and it's having another life. And then to come back to it and say, well, now I'll write this extra sort of 5,000 words about what's happened... It was very hard. I felt like I didn't want to because Peter didn't want to be a huge part of the book because he felt like it was my story. So how to write about that was quite hard without feeling like I was pillaging him. But um, I I think the the strangest thing about it was actually to to have literally the day by day memory so alive on the page. Um, And I suppose I would say to everybody keep a journal because you know coming back to it a long time later admittedly you know shaped as a book but still how much we forget of ourself you know there were there were bits in the book where I thought you did well you poor little idiot you thought <laughs> you were doing so badly and you were okay you know so writing this was a bit painful at times and took a took a couple of weeks actually took three solid complete attempts to get it right in the end and I hope it's right um but I think it was a good thing and and I'm glad to have reread the book i just wouldn't have done it i don't think you know I, yeah. so i think going back and looking at yourself or in a way with that helicopter view that i get when i'm walking you know i go outside my body sometimes on a good day and i feel like i see this little dot i felt like reading the book that i saw myself as the little dot and i didn't do so badly you know yeah
0: mm. yeah i think it's that, that sense of unburdening is very important uh, and the Camino, with all of that space and all of that time, really quite dangerous in some respects to let your mind just wander, I mean, really, for all of those hours and hours. Certainly for me, I did a lot of thinking. Um, and that's the perfect place for us to speak to a Catholic priest. <laughs> Tell us about, Tony, your first Camino.
2: Yes, that happened in 2009, as as we've just mentioned, the... Um And it came about because a a friend of mine, a a woman who, um, actually she manages now the Asylum Seekers Centre at Newtown, and uh, she used to work with me, and uh, she came in one night and said, you've got to do the Camino. I said, what's the Camino? (laughs) So she took me to the website and showed me this ancient uh, medieval walk in Spain, and uh, I said, oh, don't be silly, I'm too old and... Smart to sort of get involved in something like that, and she said, And when you've done the Camino ignoring me entirely, she said, uh, You've got to wear uh, these sandals which are MBT sandals, MBT are Maasai, and what's it? Uh, uh something, uh, I've forgotten what they're called, but anyway, they there's sandals with you're almost walking with an egg under you. Oh, yeah, yeah. they're fantastic, and so. Obedient to the last, I did the Camino. Uh, eventually, um, and wore the M B T sandals, a uh, Maasai barefoot technology. That's right. the M B T. And uh, wow. so, uh, uh, in 2009, in June 2009, and uh, I took a friend with me who was a doctor. I thought that was pretty smart. Uh, so uh, we all set off, and it was a bit of a stroll next to this. This Olympic walker I'm sitting next to, and, and uh, it was uh, just from Leon to Santiago, a little over 300 k's. Right. But we had great fun, wonderful stuff, and the um, uh, that so then so enamoured was I with the experience that I said the following year, let's do it again, and so my friend came along, but with his wife because his wife wouldn't let him go so unless she took him. so, so the three of us set out. And walked in France
0: from Le Puy en Valais to Conch. So I've done it twice. So I also wrote about sinning, indeed, walked the Camino mindful of sinning. Did you tell other pilgrims you were a priest? Oh, sometimes.
2: Uh, you know, if they ask me. Yeah. I mean, I didn't sort of disguise it, but I didn't sort of. Mm. Uh, I wasn't wearing a Roman collar or anything like that. Uh, so. Uh, um, Yes, and that led to very interesting conversations mm-hmm. and uh, uh, I don't do it too quickly because when you do get to that question, what do you do, and you use the, the, the word priest, um, a stereotype falls over you that they think they know what how you think, what your values are, uh, what areas to avoid in yeah. conversation, yeah, all that sort yeah. of stuff, which is... So artificial to be unhelpful. Yeah. So uh, I don't hurry to to um, play that card.
0: Yeah. yeah. But uh, but it's yeah. So I do. Uh, Elsie, if you're listening and you're wondering what that noise is in the background, we're by Sydney Harbour, and as Sydney has always been, and will always be, somebody close by is renovating. So that's a drill or something in the background that we're just going to have to put up with it. That's all we can do about it. Tony, I found myself humbled. By the enormity of the Camino, its history and its culture and its spirituality. Now, for somebody who has dedicated their life to spirituality, did you get the same feeling? And was it an easily drawn out of the experience?
2: Let me say two things about that. When I got to the end of the Camino, I met a young American woman of 21 or 22. And uh, she said, did you pray much on the Camino? So uh, I said, we did a little bit, but uh, not much. I was too concentrated on just putting one foot mm. after the other. And she said to me, you prayed with your feet. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a sort of a common phrase that she often used about the Camino, but it was the first time I'd heard it. And um, I thought, yes, that's a very, very insightful comment, that physically that's what's going on. The second part of the answer to your question is that, um, you know, was it a spiritual experience, uh, the conversation you have just had with Ailsa about sin and what is sin and all that sort of stuff? Um, I, a lot of my thinking is framed by a belief that we all carry a thing called distress. We're all broken.
0: Mm.
2: I've never met a person who isn't to some extent broken and carrying... A lot of stuff in them. Um, and uh, I, I like to call that distress, that, uh, uh, you know, broken relationships, uh, being put down, sense of lack of self-esteem, uh, mistakes that you've made, things that you're ashamed about. There's, there's every. This is what's being called human. And I like to think that we all carry that distress. Now, to get rid of that distress, I use another word called discharge. How do you discharge the distress? Um, there's all sorts of ways. As little children, you you know instinctively you do two things. You cry and mm, of throw tantrums and do all sorts of things physically. And secondly, you claim the attention of another person. Now, I believe that in our sort of normal day-to-day life, and particularly in, you know, bustling, pacey Pacey cities like we live in, that people don't have much time to pay attention to you. We crave it. You are giving me your attention now. Mm. I feel flattered by it. I feel liberated by it. I I like telling you what's on the mind. In fact, it's not just enjoying it. It really is dealing with some of the fundamental part of who I am, uh, discharging that distress. So bringing those sorts of thoughts together, I think for me the magic of the Camino is that physically you're walking, you're sweating, you're getting tired, you're getting blisters, you're feeling the the, the cut of the, the pack that you're on your back, you're hungry, you're mm-hmm. thirsty. Mm-hmm. Now all of that I like to think, is discharge. It's, yeah. a, it's a very unusual discharge. I live in a... I work in a... Go around the city in an air-conditioned car. I don't walk 20 metres. Uh, I sort of... Uh, I'm never hungry. I, I'm, every time I pass the fridge, I graze. I'm hardly ever thirsty. In fact, that sort of cosseted life I lead uh, is a barrier to actually being who I am. I think it's good to be hungry. I think it's good to be tired. I think it's um, important to to feel the sort of drives in your life. And it, and in walking, and in walking the Camino, I have that sense that um, a lot of those basic things that, uh, that we have, our basic needs, are unusually being expressed. Mm. Yes. Yeah. So... The distress that um, that I carry, this is a rare opportunity of expressing it. There's a lot of things I've just said to you, but, but I see a connection between the, yes. the, the those oh, sorts of things. That's absolutely outstanding.
0: <laughs> I read somewhere this week you were described as a lover of good conversation. You're certainly very good at it. One of the joys of the Camino is that pilgrims open up about their, their lives. We're very much stripped back. Everybody's a pilgrim, so it doesn't matter what, you, what I do for a living. It doesn't matter what the person I'm talking to does for a living, how big your house is, how big your car is, or what sort of car you do. What your background is, you're a pilgrim, you're the same as me. We're sleeping on bunk beds and other hundred people in there trying to put up with the French woman who's snoring. Did you offer counsel while you walked with t- to other pilgrims? Because that's something that you've done your whole life. In fact, just, off, just the discussion you and I just had then, very much you were offering counsel to me. Did you offer counsel as a pilgrim?
2: Uh, I'm, it just depends what you mean by offering counsel. I mean, offering counsel sounds like telling another person how to live their life. Mm-hmm. And I run away from that presumption at a rate of knots. Right. Uh, I, in fact, I was just ta- telling the story about my mother. My mother died at the age of 98 and... Uh, She's a very, very funny woman, uh, an extraordinary woman uh, who lived a vibrant, interesting, very sensitive life. And she'd come and listen to me as a priest sometimes. <laughs> just imagine a mother listening to you as a it on in the pulpit. anyway, uh, I can remember one famous time she said, don't go on with all that nonsense, you go on and on, just tell me what to do. Now, I think that's the image that a lot of people have about what counsel is. Mm. Tell me what to do. As soon as you examine the, the statement, yeah. I'm, I'm a pilgrim. I'm still trying to work it out. In fact, I'm not sure that I'm advancing. I'm sort of going backwards in lots of ways. I mean, uh, however, therefore, counsel means providing a context, a safe context for people to... Discharge a little of their distress. Sure. To listen to them, to pay attention—actually, to pay attention to a person—I think has a level of healing in it
0: mm-hmm.
2: that is um, not to be underestimated. In it, uh, so counsel. I would prefer the word counsel. Perhaps this is what you mean, but anyway, yeah. that's what I mean. And yeah. so there was a lot of listening. Yeah. And and uh, and the stories you. People are privileged enough to, to
0: share with you are extraordinary, and to be good at conversation, you need to be a very good listener, of course, don't you? Yeah, I'm a bit of a talker too, of course. But anyway, I, I mean, I,
2: I talk too much, but the but the uh, but yeah yeah exactly exactly. Oh, the conversation is listening and yeah. that, and uh, sort of really dealing with the language of 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 the. Of the person that you are in conversation with.
0: Yeah. Uh, Elsa.
1: Oh, just that thing about conversation. There's two things about that, it seems to me that one of which is most of us are listening thinking what we're going to say in response as the person's talking. Whereas if you're actually listening, generally there's a moment there where you you know, where you have to take a thing, yeah. you know. But the other thing about the Camino is because so often the conversations are not in languages our own, it seems to me it comes back to a much more interesting conversation because we have to find ways of simplifying what we're saying. So we might know the word for hmm. corazon, which might be heart, and we might know the word for cafe, which is coffee, yeah, and yeah. somehow we have to stitch together. Yeah. You know, I had to say to someone one day, a Spaniard, that I that I felt like I was taking a huge risk and I was doing something stupid, and I ended up I knew the the word for dance and I knew the word for devil and so I said that I was doing a dance with the devil. For him, that was not a phrase. We have it in English. It was not a phrase. He exploded. He thought that was the most fantastic phrase to describe (sighs) it. But you think we're reduced to just simple and there's something very human and profound about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Well, I I want to go back to the Camino now and I suppose... uh, uh, Let me tell you uh, one little story before I go
2: because I can't resist it. It was a, it's about language. I mean, some uh, I fell in with a group of Germans one night, and uh, I had no, we had no language, no common language. Uh, Elsa's pretty good at languages. I'm very very limited. But uh, we we had a meal together, so food became our language. Then um, then uh, the cook the chef brought out grappa. Oh, wow. So. Uh, I took a little modest amount of grappa, and and uh, and liquor became our language. Then we started singing; the music became our language, and then finally, dare I say, a little bit intoxicated, I was up dancing with the chef, who was a grizzled, bearded Spaniard, cheek to cheek, and uh, and dancing became our language. So there's all sorts of languages that uh, oh. that uh, yeah, that happens.
0: At grappa. I'm still getting over the grappa. It's still been over a year. So uh, I'm going to ask you, Tony, just before I go back to Elsa, what's the greatest challenge you faced on the Camino?
2: Well, that's a good question. Biggest challenge, I suppose. I mean, uh, there was a physical challenge. I mean, the, the, uh, I, I, I didn't get... I wasn't injured, um, but I... I nor did I get tired. In fact, you, you, one of the strange things about the Camino, you seem to walk better and better the longer you go. Yeah. It's, it's just the opposite to the yeah. sense of cumulative sort of tiredness that I imagine would be the case. The um, biggest challenge, eh? Um, I think just getting there, even it was 300, it was arriving at Santiago, that was a challenge. Um, Yes, and completing the course, yes, that was a a challenge that I felt really chuffed about, actually. I I arrived in Santiago on my 75th birthday, and And I celebrated Mass as a priest in the cathedral with a packed cathedral of pilgrims. The lunchtime Mass? The lunchtime Mass, yeah, and it was my 75th day, and and in fact, uh, I thought the priests might have thrown me out, I was bearded, and stinking, <laughs> and and, uh, That's and unshowered. Great. And I walked around. I said, didn't have any Spanish. I said, uh, uh, listen, I'm a, I forget the, what's the Spanish word for priest? Oh, the,
1: the Italian faith.
2: Right? I think I had the word. Anyway, I, I said, uh, and they said, oh, come and join us. Uh, you know, normally there's so many con men around the place that, that, uh, that you're, you're often after credentials. But they, they quickly invited me to join them and it was wonderful it was wonderful so the challenge was met by that
0: I arrived on my 50th birthday into Santiago and went to that mass as on my 50th birthday which was just absolutely fantastic (laughs) (laughs) so can I return to you Elsa and ask you the same question the greatest challenge you faced on, on on your Camino's
1: and I suppose mean, it's probably a cliche to say this, but I think the biggest challenge is always yourself. You know, for me, well, for me anyway, I sort of meet myself on that road in a way that I maybe don't let myself meet myself mm-hmm. at home. And um, you know, I think the greatest the greatest challenge is that, and the the thing that I always fight is speed. The first Camino, I I did the first uh, the you know from Saint Jean to Santiago. I did that in. 28 days and I'd had a rest day in there I just I get I get like walking madness you know I'm not walking madness walking euphoria and I can walk all day and because I'm blessed with pretty good feet um you know I can just walk and but what happens is I go out of my head (laughs) and it's like I'm just trance like trance like and so when I got back from that first one and that hadn't struck me but on the second one I understood that slowing down was big and so I actually had a little tattoo put of a snail on the inside of my finger to remind me about that didn't work Um, but still I think the thing of slowing down so this last Camino the one that I made kind of in morning I suppose to a degree I said no more than 25 kilometres per day that is the absolute limit no more and I kept to that And I don't know that it was richer, but it was absolutely different. And I feel like I was more present for other people. I don't know that I was more present for myself, but I was more present for other people. And so I think in my life, speeding is my great sort of sin. But um, the Camino shows me that in a way that nothing else does, you know, because you miss stuff if you walk the way I walk. You miss so much, you know, it's just crazy that fast, fast, fast thing. Um, so meeting myself on the road is always the big challenge, I think.
0: Could I ask you for a favourite moment? Is there one moment that oh, you could say, that's my favourite moment?
1: Well, I don't know if it's my favourite. I've got so many and I fall so ridiculously in love all the time on the road. I fall in love with cows. I fall in love with <laughs> sheep. I fall in love with flowers. I fall in love with women in cafes. I fall in love with, you know, men picking olives. But the moment that comes first to mind was actually in... Uh, a little town called Lasa, which is up in Galicia on the Villa La Plata. And there was a woman in a shop, and I was having, at the end of a bad day, I'd walked in there, and um, we somehow got talking about our mothers, and both of our mothers had died many years ago. We were talking about family and everything, and suddenly we were both in floods of tears. And she grabbed me, and she said this whole thing about the fact that life is sol y sombra, sun and shadow, and that you can't have one without the other. And suddenly we were laughing and then she told me that Solisombra is a drink and that it's anise and brandy, it's a <laughs> lethal concoction and yeah. I must have it. Well, of course, I developed such a taste for it, it was fantastic. But it was the thing, Sun and Shadow, you know, when I think about her a lot, I always think about Solisombra since then because I don't think you need to suffer in order to have happiness, but I sure as hell think that if you've had some shadow... My God, you love the sun a whole lot more when you get it, you know. And I, That's I think fantastic. about it was beautiful. And I, you know, so I highly recommend to people asking for a soli sombra
0: in a in a bar. Oh, oh, oh.
1: But you know, that was one of my moments that sticks like glue. Mm.
0: Tony, a favorite moment is yes,
2: interesting. I like telling a story. It's um, my companion on the first Camino um, was not with me. He he had a little bit of a, a foot problem, and. Um, I was by myself, and uh, I walked out of this little place called El Ganzo, tiny little dot. Interestingly, I also stopped at the same place uh, five, four or five months later. It's one of the the only time our stories really cross over. But anyway, that's not the story. I walked out, and it was raining. It was raining quite heavily, and it was cold. So I put on my golf gear, my golf stuff, and and, uh, put on my hat, and my sandals, and my pack on, and uh, I went out walking in the rain. And walking in the heavy rain, but dry, I, I was overcome with a feeling of euphoria of freedom. Now, I suppose it was that normally, Again, in this organised life of mine here, in the rain, I'll have an umbrella, or I'll get home, stay home, or I'll think, "Oh, isn't it awful?" But here, I was actually walking about thirty k's. Uh, and the first ten of it was in rain, and I thought I was euphoric. I was listening to a bit of music, and I and I found it a moment of it seemed to counter. So many other principles of my life that I'm constrained by. One of them, which is the weather, perhaps you know. Yeah, yeah. And I and I was free of that. and I thought isn't this fantastic? You know. So
0: strange moment, walking in the rain. Hmm. I mentioned earlier the book. It's called The Attachment. We've come to this part of our discussion, and I'll tell my listeners where to buy it at the end of the podcast. I absolutely loved it. Uh, I thought it was outstanding. It began, Tony, with you writing to Ailsa, a complimentary note from a reader to an author. What prompted you, do you recall, to reach out that very first time? A lot of people um,
2: presume because it was about sin, and I'm in the sin game. <laughs> and that's, and I think I've probably sort of uh, encouraged that sort of thinking, but that's not, the, that's not true at all. Uh, My response was because it was a a very um, attractive, indeed compelling, I hate to admit this, (laughs) compelling sort of description of the Camino. And I read it in two days um, and it, uh, it really sort of recovered for me a lot of the things I had about the Camino. And it was mixed with this funny idea about sin and carrying other people's sins with... Which I suppose, uh, professionally, that's my sort of game. So I, I may have said—I forget actually—but I may have said, "What's the idea of getting into this my game and keep out of keep your little feminine nose out of this game because you don't know what you're doing, woman?" Uh, I might have said that, but that really wasn't the reason. The reason was because I just found a compelling story, yeah, and it, uh, and I just wanted to write to, yeah, get behind meet the person
0: in terms of writing who told this story. And the correspondence between you over the course of the next two years and the relationship you formed is the heart and soul of the book. So I also can I ask you, were you surprised to develop this intense friendship with a Catholic priest you'd never met
1: yeah, I, I mean, I, I was very surprised. I was delighted when the first letter came because there were questions I wanted to ask. Yeah. You know, there were things I didn't understand about Catholicism that I was curious to ask, Tony. Um, but I'm also a really, really big-time correspondent. I write a lot of letters and I love real letters and mm. snail mail and, yeah. and I write a lot of emails. So to have someone who kind of met that yeah. was really exciting. Um, and so... I suppose, you know, it kind of grew out of a hunger in both of us and then it was two minds that were both equally curious. I think that was the thing and, and it was such a treat for me to find that. And, look, the other thing about it is, um, you know, they call it the sub sort of title of the book is Letters from a Most Unlikely Friendship. People would say to me, what are you talking about with that priest? And, you know, it was kind of, it was, it was a very interesting thing because growing up in showbiz, as I did... Yeah. I see a lot of connections we're both in the world of ritual we're both in the world of kind of telling stories so I think we worked to find those connections um, but also it let me ask some of the things as we became closer friends I suppose pen pals um, it let me ask the questions that I would never have had a chance to ask otherwise Uh, and it was a yeah, it was an incredibly rich communion very quickly.
0: And Tony, being a lover of conversation, you can hear in your responses that you then are reaching out and an invitation to continue the dialogue, aren't you?
2: Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. Um, I think she liked my words, because I'm a terrific writer, actually. So. <laughs> and I, and I, but anyway, well, I, I don't want to immodestly sort of make that claim, but the... Uh, to be serious, um, yeah, The one letter led on to another. I mean, in no way, starting uh, The Correspondence, did I presume that it was going to become more and more uh, a part of my life. It wasn't just writing letters. We were sort of sharing what was happening in, a, in almost a journaling mm-hmm. fashion. That's right, yeah. And... I found that actually a satisfying thing to do even, dare I say it, even by myself without sharing it and and getting Ailsa's sort of feedback of saying, that's interesting Mm. and these questions are stimulating. Yeah, I found that a a very... uh, It goes back to that question I was talking about. Uh, The letters were paying attention to each of us, I think, uh, in a way that was very, very rare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I found it. Uh, it became a little bit, dare, addictive. Is not the probably that's not the right word. But, but it was a very important part of um, yeah the un, an yeah. unfolding friendship, I
0: suppose. Yeah. And my next question, I've written it here. The correspondence in both emails and handwritten letters is about love and about loss. And I wanted to ask you both if it was cathartic and I've written here, have, had you both found a shoulder to cry on or someone to lean on? Tony? Um,
2: I find that language just, while it's good language, it's just a little bit dramatic for what I felt. And there's stages in this. There's It went over nine months and there were all sorts of things that happened over that nine months. Significantly, of course, the loss of Ailsa's um, husband, Peter. No, but that came later. This came later, this, yeah, yeah that's, that's true. much yeah. later. No, yeah. this,
1: this ends, well, the correspondence yeah. in the book ends at nine months. You're quite right.
2: It wasn't you? leaning on somebody's shoulder um, as much as, um, yes, finding the language and the stories and the events to share with Somebody who valued the sharing. Mm. I mean, what happens in conversation normally, uh, in the conversations that I have, I mean, they they vary enormously, of course, but uh, you say something to a person, and a, a nice, polite respondent will listen for a little while, but then will shift the conversation to something else, perhaps their own. Distressed, to use that word again, and that's normal. But um, but here in this this in writing correspondence, uh, it has a has a um, dimension that allows you to tell the full story and then have somebody respond to that story. Mm-hmm. Now, actually, that's pretty rare. Yeah, pretty yeah. rare.
0: Yeah, yeah, and in fact, you're very good at it. Very good at oh, yeah. in the oh. book because you can. Because you're reading your response, Alison, and, and you're thinking she hasn't addressed the, the, the many points. And some of the times you would raise half a dozen points in one piece of correspondence, and you're thinking, Will she get to that part? Will she get to that question? And often it's, oh, it's a one liner, but you've acknowledged it. It's that's a very good point you make that mm. you can address mm. all of those things in, mm. in that correspondence. Mm.
2: If there's value in the book, by the way, um, if there's a value other than sort of you know the, the joy of reading. Letters. Yeah, yeah. It really is, I think, we didn't set out to do this, and this is all post-factum stuff, yeah. you know, but uh, if there's value in it, it's the value of the enormous hunger that we have for conversation and having attention paid to us, to mm-hmm. our story. Yeah. And if in any way we can model that... I think that, that's not a bad contribution.
0: Mate. And, and I've written here, Al said there is also a sense at times of you reaching out to Tony for answers. Um, it, it, were you engaging, do you think, with someone who you hoped may hold the answers to some of those questions?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting thing that, because, of course, I had rejected Catholicism, you know, quite mm-hmm. early on. Then I married into, I mean, I, was, I grew up Catholic, but I married into a much more sort of traditionally Catholic family right. than my own. And so I danced around the edges of it a lot, and I had a, one of my husband's cousins is you know is a priest and has and was fantastic at answering questions. But I didn't see him a lot. So suddenly to have this person that I could pose those questions to, but also then after a time feeling free enough that I could bang my own ideas up against Tony's ideas and say, well, what do you make of this? And and it wasn't even just about things spiritual. It was about all manner of things, I suppose. Um, and it's partly there's a generational difference. I mean, the, the experience of being male and female is, is really one yeah. of the big kind of yeah. themes of the book that's a difference, obviously. Um, so it was a chance. I've, I mean, the friendships I value most of all my friendships are not the ones with people like me. I have lots of friends who are really opposed to me politically, really opposed to me in terms of their kind of way of being in the world, consumerism or whatever you want to call it. They couldn't be more opposed. And yet those friendships to me are the ones that I think are the best because I know they're good people and we want the same things in the world. None of us want world poverty. None of us, you know, we all want the same things. It's just different ways of getting to them. And so negotiating a friendship like that is quite... Hard, But for me, it's very rich. It's really easy to agree with someone all the time. But to actually go, oh, we disagree. Tell me why. And I'll thump up against it. But I'll also try to hear it. F- I find incredibly uh, rich. I don't always do it well. Yeah. But, I, you know, I want to beat them over the head sometimes. And I think we've beaten each other over the head a few times. Maybe. But <laughs> Now, you beat me over the... Never. That's <laughs> domestic violence. I, I abhor it. <laughs> Nothing domestic about
0: our no. relationship. <laughs> Let me ask you, though, were some of those questions raised as a result of opening yourself to the Camino?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was such a good starting point, I suppose, knowing, you know, and often we talk about, I mean, the church, in Tony's view, talks about itself as a sort of a pilgrim, a place for of yeah. pilgrimage. I'm going to get to that. All oh, right. And yeah. so, so, you know, there was a kind of an. A language, and one of my great things is finding common language. How do you yeah. do it? Yeah. We had a language that was not necessarily totally in common because I'd been away from some of the the sort of language of Catholicism for a long time. Mm-hmm. But then Tony, it turned out, was is in the business of trying to find a way to... Address some of the spiritual issues not through traditional language. Yeah. So I think we were kind of trying to negotiate something that was about finding a language that was
2: useful to both of us. You and know. Another way into that is to say that um, uh, our conversation is a camino,
1: mm.
2: not a non-walking camino. Um, that it is. Um, it was. Was it triggered by what happened in Spain? Yes and no. Uh, was it triggered by Ailsa's book, Sinning Across Spain? Yes, but it, in a sense, it was our effort, tiny effort, to sort of express what uh, what camino means in one's life, what yeah. pilgrimage means in one's so. life.
0: The yeah. pilgrimage of the mind, if you like. Yeah. That sort yes. right. of stuff. And in fact, Alistair, I've, I've have you marked in my copy of the book, you wrote in one of your communications, mm. you and I are pilgrims walking together for a while. Um, and you called one another compañero, mm, mm. a companion, mm. a pilgrim. Yeah. And that's very much a the theme of the book. And Tony, you wrote in one of your emails, the, re- the gospel tells us Jesus walked everywhere and there's a reason for this. Well, I can just read this paragraph. It was magnificent. When one walks, one can also talk. One can stop and have time for others. One can eat and touch people and interact with them. Walking, you say, allows us particular life pace. It makes possible a way of understanding and looking with open eyes. It's about having a capacity to make visible what is invisible, of paying attention to inconvenient suffering, of taking responsibility for what is broken in our world, whether it is wounded people or a damaged environment. That's magnificent writing. Oh, magnificent. Absolutely (laughs) magnificent. Because you sum up in it what it's like to walk, and when you are walking whether it's on a trail in Spain or whether you're walking through life metaphorically, that's what we're looking for, isn't it? Place and space. Yeah,
2: yes. Uh, uh, yes, walking is interesting. And it's, um, And uh, there, there's, a, there's a phrase that... Um, I don't forget whether I use this or not. And this, this is a very religious statement I'm going to make to you, but we have a three-kilometre-an-hour God that in fact, moving and walking is a way of getting in touch with this gracious mystery that holds us. We probably don't do it talking. In fact, we do it very badly talking. Mm -hmm. And even to use the word, I'm really getting into heavy stuff here now, but even to use the word G-O-D is something I'm becoming less and less patient about. Because nobody knows what they're talking about. Let me say that again. Nobody (laughs) knows what they're talking about. We all think we know what we're talking about. Nobody knows what they're talking about. It's one of the great mysteries of life. And to appreciate mystery is something that we all have, but um, we use the one word G-O-D, thinking that it it communicates to all sorts of range of people. And um, so what am I saying about that? Walking and the phrase that we have a uh, three-kilometre-an-hour God sounds as though I'm contradicting myself. But um, there's something about... Even the word pilgrimage, you see, I also touched it a a moment ago, Fifty years ago, the Roman Catholic Church sat down. All the bishops, two thousand of them, sat down in Rome. God bless their little socks. Looked beautiful, really. Anyway, they, they sat in Rome and they asked themselves the question: What is the Church? So the first fellow who stood up, and there was a, I'm reducing this to tiny sort of statements, got up and said, "The Church is uh, Pope, bishops, priests, religious," and actually forgot about the laity. The lay people, the normal people. Yeah. This is a, its a triangle, okay? And two thousand bishops, and a fellow got up and said, "A um, little Belgian bishop got up and said uh, that view of the church is too clericalist—that's exaggerating the role of priests, too legalist, exaggerating the the role of law, and too triumphalist, being up yourself." In that sort of, if you understand that phrase, yeah. uh, anyway. But this Belgium got up and said, and so the bishop said, "Yeah, yeah, there is a bit, isn't it?" So they came up with another image, and the image was the people of God. Now, the people of God is a term that comes from Jewish language. It means the the the, uh, the people who got, left, left Egypt to go to to find a home, to walk themselves home, and got lost in the desert. Moses was part of the team, you know, and uh, he lost them. I got very angry about that. But they said the church was actually a, a, a group of shuffling, lost, mm. hungry people. And by gosh, ghost, doesn't that change the image? Doesn't that change? Now, we've been trying to understand what that means for 50 years. We're trying to behave in that way for 50 years haven't done too well, it's gone up and down, up and down, up and down, you know, uh, reaction and mm-hmm. the, the, a lot of people said, oh, what nonsense and you romantics, you don't know what you're talking about and well, we've got to keep the institution going, We must protect the uh, institution. Now, there's there's a huge history of 50 years of, of moving between those two. The technical word is models of the church. One is a shuffling group of lost people, and the other is uh, somebody who's legalist, clericalist, and triumphalist, and uh, and there's lots of people look at the church at the moment and say, yeah, well, it is legalist, clericalist, and triumphalist, isn't it? Yeah, exactly right. So, no, uh,
1: well, I was just going to say, you know, on that thing about uh, the images of spirituality, if you want, in that model of the pilgrims is what you're describing, yeah. really, in the desert, you know. For me, because i don 't necessarily use that language, but the thing that I think is common, whether you be a Catholic or whether you be a you know the the Buddhists who walk or whatever, is something happens to us out there on that road, all of us, where we get a sense of ourselves as tiny specks, really tiny, in that vast landscape, under that vast sky, fragile you know in our walking gear without our car to protect us and without our badge of what we do in the real world and we're reduced to this tiny, tiny thing. We're literally brought to our knees sometimes. To me, you know, that goes absolutely against everything that happens to us in our real world where we say, well, I'm a writer and, you know, rather important or I'm a priest and I'm rather important or, you know, I've got my own podcast and I'm important. We're all important because we're trying to carve out a little bit. We're trying to make ourselves big, but somehow on the Camino there's something that happens where you go, I'm so small. And the relief of that, of knowing your place in the world, in the cosmos, in the gracious mystery, as Tony would call it, seems to me to be very close to what I'm meant to feel like in the religious landscape. That, you know, what we're all trying to understand, whatever we call God, is our sense of ourselves as humble in the face of nature the universe, the transcendent. It's this humility that's so hard to get in our own lives because we're trying to carve out a space. But out there, you can't be anything but humble, really. You know, it's like, you know, that's where I feel in touch with what the teachings of so many doctrines have been about.
0: So what, to my listeners now, what you're hearing here, this back and forth, is a little sample of the back and forth that's in the book, The Attachment. Uh, it's not just dealing about um, theology and belief or, or love or loss. As Tony said before, they're fairly heavy things to talk about, but it's very light. It's, there's lots of good humor. And, and, and one piece I loved, I got it here. Again, my book is full of yellow notes. I loved it, Tony. Said you said, it was a potential coffee date. You said, P.S., have you heard the saying that there are three things that can cure anything? Sweat, tears, or seawater, and all of them are salt. I loved that. I don't know why I loved it. Again, more magnificent writing. Wow, magnificent, magnificent. <laughs> and insightful. Apart from that, the book. Yeah. Did you, did you want to say anything about that? Oh, no, no, no. It, no. it speaks it's itself, for itself, in my view. I forget where I read it. Actually, that's all.
1: Yeah. Well, I stole it. I actually wrote quite a long piece about it for a magazine called Slow Living. But um, because I actually think it is really profoundly true. After you know, after I was sort of plunged into grief, I did. I didn't do a lot of crying. But as soon as I could get back to sweating, because I couldn't walk when I was yeah. first widowed for some reason, but I, when I got back to walking and began sweating, that was when I first started to cry. And now I'm learning to swim. And I've got to tell you, salt, water, those three, I bow before you, oh wise one, because really they are yeah. they are great tips.
0: There's just something about that. I, I read it over and over and over. It's marked in my book. and In fact, I'm sending a copy to an old friend of mine and it's highlighted in the book. It's a, it's, I said before, you, you, you walk together as pilgrims in, in terms of communication. It's a lovely way of looking at the books. Funny, it's thought-provoking, it challenges you, it breaks your heart, and it's also delightful. And I think you could tell I loved it. But before we inf- finish, the information about you two that I received from your publishers says it's a book about two lives lived with curiosity and appetite. And it goes on to say, Tony swims in Sydney Harbour every day and Ailsa is a hopeless swimmer but is taking lessons. Can I ask you, has there been a narrowing of the difference between you in terms of the Australian crawl?
1: No, there has not. And in fact, it infuriates me. He swims around the net every morning, a full circle. And I swim sort of just across the half. And I can't, no, there has not been. And I think you're deliberately swimming faster to make me feel less epped.
2: I'm simply a magnificent swimmer. <laughs> no, it's not true. So, um, little old ladies pass me and kicking me in the face. But uh, um, uh, no, no, no. Is there a... There is a, there is a coming together. Yes. Elsa was really committed, you can see that, and committed to swimming, and she's swimming very well. Um,
1: can I say that yeah. was the reason for the swimming? It wasn't no, just right, okay. Well it wasn't just that Tony could do it, so damn it I would. Yeah. It was actually another thing to do with dealing with grief. I thought I've got to stare down a fear. And swimming for me was a big fear, and putting my head under was a big fear, and opening my eyes underwater was a big fear, and going deeper. But there were seahorses on the net at Nielsen Park, and when the net was pulled in last year, I'd been swimming for a while and I went down to help the rangers and I watched these little seahorses as we pulled them off the net to relocate them. And they did this thing. They just went to the seagrass, hooked their tail around it and they swayed in the tide. And I remember thinking, you have to go deeper and you have to be prepared to just hook your tail on and let the tide take you. And those little seahorses and learning to swim, I would never have seen them if it hadn't been for the fact that Tony was a swimmer and said, you can swim, but it's the thing of, you know, going with the tide. They were the best little teachers. I just loved them. And so something about going deeper and facing a fear was the reason for swimming. But now it's such pleasure.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. And in salt water, of course, we float, don't we? There's that sense of, of weightless, a uh, lifting of weight. Mm. Look, this is probably too
2: big a question to, to end with, but um, I'm reading a book at the moment by Jacques Cousteau's grandson. And he says we have three minds as human beings, a red mind, a grey mind, and a blue mind. The red mind is the mind that is anxious and hooked up with work and struggle and appointments and all the sorts of stuff that we very recognise very easily. That's our red mind. The grey mind is, is anxious and uh, depressed and the, the dark side of our life. The blue mind is something which is linked with water, either swimming or fishing, or even when we go on holidays we go to the water. It's got something to do with with our natural inclination to be near or in water. And um, this fellow, this writer, says that to be in water or near water actually changes our perspective of, changes our, our cerebral function. Uh, anyway, that's a very technical and probably boring thing, but I'd better say, huh? better, 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 but to be in water and to be near water is one of the great gifts of living. And the last uh, little statistic, which uh, I'll share with you, is that I've read somewhere that 90% of all living things live under the water. Just get your head around that. <laughs> 90% of all all living things, organisms, uh, growth, live under the water, from which, of course, we crawled up the sands of evolution and, uh, and developed our
0: rather... Uh, funny way of walking down pilgrimages (laughs) (laughs) look thank you both so much for your time and congratulations on the book Alsa. I look forward to more of your stories and journeys and Tony I hope you enjoy putting your feet up after two generations of working for Catholics in Sydney. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. My guests this week, the Australian actor, blogger, playwright and author Alsa Piper, author of Sitting Across Spain, an updated version of the book, will be published later this year. When do you think?
1: Uh, October.
0: October. And you can read Alsa's blog at alsapiper.com. And Monsignor Tony Doherty, a suburban parish priest in Sydney for more than 50 years. You can find him paddling about, enjoying himself in Sydney Harbour. Their book is called The Attachment, published by Alan and Unwin. It's available from Amazon and from where all good books are sold. We're out of time. I'm Dan Mullins. This is My Camino, the podcast. And until next week, one Camino.